Good morning once again, church. Please open your Bibles to the book of Malachi, the minor prophecy of Malachi, chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 1 through 9 this morning, and once you've found your place, if you would stand to your feet as we read God's Word together. Malachi, chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. Malachi chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. God's word says this. And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them, because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave, it to him. I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many away from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and the people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is a messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble By your instruction, you have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. Let us pray, church. Heavenly Father, we bless your name. We love your name. We thank you for Jesus Christ, who takes away our sin who died on the cross for us and rose again so that we might be able to approach you boldly before your throne in worship, Lord, and declare that you are great, the maker of all things, the creator of all things, our God and our Savior. So, Lord, we ask that, as we sung earlier, that you would speak what is true. Here's our heart. We give you our life now to have it conformed by your word, by the truth, that you would sanctify us by truth, and your word is truth. And so, Lord, the true preaching of your word matters. It matters for the salvation of those who don't know Christ. And so I pray for their conversion this morning. Lord, and the true preaching of your word matters for your church because it builds us up to be more like Christ. And so I pray that you would be with us now. Enlighten and illuminate your word for us by your spirit who inspired it. And may we come away knowing that we have met with you, that we have known Christ deeper, And may we come away with a better mission of what we're supposed to be doing in this world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, please be seated. The sermon is titled, God's Love for His Name. This is part three of this series of God's Love for His Name. And here we see that God rebukes the priests. So God's Love for His Name, part three, He rebukes the priests. The last time I spoke from Malachi was back in December, over four months ago. Thank you guys for 
allowing me to take a sabbatical and a four-month rest. It did me much good, and it did my family much good. And uh, I'm excited to be back in Malachi. And so I'd like to bring us up to speed since it's been a while. I want us to see where we are in this book and how it's placed in the rest of the Bible. So I'm going to use the word covenant to help us fast-track through the Old Testament, this word covenant. All right? A covenant is a promise. A covenant is a contract. And sometimes uh, these covenants made by God are with the world. Sometimes the covenants are made with an individual or a nation or some other group of people. Sometimes the covenant is conditional, meaning that both parties must keep their ends of the promise, of the agreement, of the contract. Sometimes these covenants are unconditional, meaning God is the only one that's going to keep the part. It doesn't matter if the other people keep their part or not. God is the one who's going to bring the whole thing together. For the sake of time, I'm just going to try to summarize these covenants without giving you all the details of each, some detail, but not everything. And so we're going to get a 20,000 view foot uh, view of Scripture by using these covenants, okay? So here we go. If you don't know these, I'm going to have them up on the screen for you so that you can follow along and not just hear a bunch of strange terms and strange names, and hopefully they'll help you through Scripture. In Scripture, we see the creation of the universe and the world, and on the sixth day, God makes mankind to bear his image, to be in his likeness and to reflect his glory. And God issues the Adamic covenant. We name it after Adam. God promises to Adam that, he, that if he ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, that he would die. All Adam had to do was perfectly obey God in this perfect world, and he would live forever. Adam disobeyed God, and God did what he said he, he was going to do in this covenant. Adam and the entire universe were placed under a curse for his disobedience, and we all inherited Adam's corruption and sin. And so the entirety of Scripture must be looked at through this lens from this point forward. We are all still required to be perfect before God, but we can't be because of Adam. But God kept his covenant and punished him with sin. Right after Adam's rebellion and fall, God issues the redemption covenant. God promises a Savior through Eve's seed. The Savior would be a man who would destroy Satan. And so we get a microscopic view of someone who is going to come to this world, and this person is going to right things, and this person is going to bring some sort of redemption. And so now the entirety of Scripture must also be looked at through this lens on forward. And then we come to the Noahic covenant, named after Noah. Evil was all over the planet. And God decided to save Noah's family, and God decided to destroy all of humanity through a worldwide flood. After the flood subsided, God promised that he'd never judge the world again with a worldwide flood. And as a sign of his covenant, he put the rainbow in the sky. And so whenever we see the rainbow, we're reminded of this promise made to the world that God will never judge it by a flood again. But this story of Noah is there to teach us that salvation and judgment Come at the same time. As Noah was saved, the world was destroyed. God's deliverance of his people comes right alongside his judgment of those who hate him and his people. And the New Testament teaches us that a second worldwide judgment is coming. But this time it won't be with the flood. Instead, it will be with fire. And God rescues his people from the world and delivers them from the world as the world is judged. And so the entirety of Scripture must now be looked at through this lens forward, that there's a future salvation and a judgment coming. Then we come to the 
Abrahamic covenant, named after Abraham. To Abraham, God promised to create a great nation out of him. There was actually two people, believers, but first and foremost, the Israelites, a national people. So that was one part of the promise. God promised to give Abraham also a special land in Canaan. And then thirdly, God promises in this covenant to protect Abraham and to bless Abraham so that Abraham would be a blessing to the entire world. But Abraham, he was not just the father of the Israelites. He was the father, Scripture says, of all who would ever believe in Jesus Christ as the Savior. And so there's the spiritual descendants of Abraham too. From Abraham, there descended a spiritual nation, a nation that is going to inherit not just the land of Canaan, not just a small piece of land on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, but the entire planet will belong to Abraham's spiritual descendants because they are co-heirs with Jesus Christ. That is us Christians. That is us believers. We are descendants and will inherit the entire planet. And so God's promise to bless all the nations of the world through Abraham is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, saving people, from all nations, tribes, and tongues. And so now, in Scripture, the entirety of it must be looked at through this lens on forward, that there's this threefold promise that God is going to give to Abraham, and it's so bigger, so much bigger than we anticipated. After that, Abraham's people eventually become a slave to Egypt, and God frees them from the Egyptians. And now the Israelites are with Moses at Mount Sinai. And so we see the Mosaic Covenant being issued and made and delivered to Israel. In this covenant, in this promise, in this agreement, contract, were sacrificial rituals, holy days. There were eating laws and civil laws and moral laws and rules for priests and instructions for the tabernacle, which is a movable tent. And in that movable tent, God dwelled and he visited the Israelites. And this is where sacrifices were offered to God so that the people of God could have their sins atoned for and forgiven. And the Israelites were to adhere to this agreement This is a conditional covenant, actually. God promised at the end of this covenant that if they loved God, if, conditional, if they loved God and obeyed him, they would do well and they would prosper and their harvests would be great and they'd be blessed beyond their comprehension. And if they disobeyed God and loved other gods, and if they broke this covenant, God would kick them out of the land that he gave them, that he was about to give them, and God would allow their enemies to overtake them and crush them and suppress them and oppress them. And so the rest of Scripture must be looked at through this lens from this point forward. Blessings can be cursed, and curses can be turned back into blessings depending on how they relate to God in that covenant. Keep keep that in your ear because this is going to play into what we're talking about today, okay? Curses and blessings. And then we come to the Davidic covenant, named after David. Uh, named after David, sorry. All right? Just wanted you to know, see if you're paying attention, okay? Mr. David, all right, David, he is the second king of Israel. In this covenant promise, the Lord tells David, King David, David, your your throne is going to go on forever and ever. This means that an eternal king is coming through David. And so the rest of Scripture is looked at through this covenant promise. Then we see the final covenant, the ultimate covenant, which is the new covenant, in the Old Testament, Old Testament means Old Covenant. Didn't know if you knew that. New Testament means New Covenant. Okay? 
You have the New Testament, the New Covenant, new promise. This is the promise that God gives to Israel, that he will give them new hearts. And just like in the Old Testament, they forsook God over and over. In this new covenant, God will give them new hearts that will never be allowed to forsake them. They won't be able to because he's going to change their hearts. He promises to write his law on their heart so that they'll never break covenant with him again. And now this new covenant promise is extended not just to Israelites, but to non-Israelites, to Gentiles, to people like most of us here. If we are not Jewish, then we are Gentile. And this new covenant promise is extended not just to Israel, but to the entire world. This is the covenant that Jesus seals with his blood. When we take communion and we see that this is the blood of the covenant, that's what he's talking about, that his blood was shed to forever seal and make unalterable this covenant. That's, why his, that's one reason why his blood was shed, to make sure that the new covenant never gets messed up. Okay, So Jesus died on the cross and shed his blood to ratify it. Now, the book of Malachi, it takes place about 400 years before Jesus is born. Between Malachi and when Jesus is birth, there's a period of 400 years of silence from God. It's nothing from God. No prophets, no miracles, nothing. It's the last book of the Old Testament. The Israelites, prior to Malachi, they had been kicked out of their land, the land that God had given them. Jerusalem had been sacked and destroyed. The temple where worship and sacrifice was, were done by the priests had been destroyed. And the Israelites had been under Babylonian rule in captivity for 70 years. Why were they suffering all these bad things? Because they broke the Mosaic Covenant and they went after other gods. And the Lord did what he promised he would do in this covenant. He booted them out of the land just like God booted Adam out of the Garden of Eden. Listen, you don't get to be with God if you're set on rebelling against him. God is not a lonely old man waiting up in heaven for sinners like you and I to come crawling to him like as if he's some lonely hurting person. God is holy and righteous, and if you sin, you're out of his presence, okay? If you are not in proper covenant with God, you don't get to be with him. In Malachi, we see that the Israelites, though, have returned to their homeland. Sacrifices are being done by the priests, which means the temple is restored to some degree. And if you understand the Mosaic Covenant, why would they be back in their land after being kicked out? Why would they be offering sacrifices in the temple if the temple was previously destroyed? If you understand the Mosaic Covenant, then it means that they have come back to God. They have repented of their sin, and their curses were turned to blessings. Are you with me so far? Okay, this is why you got to know these covenants. They've turned back to God, and he's blessing them like he's promised. But guess what? Guess what? In Malachi, we see that the priests and the people are beginning to go back to their sinful ways. You, you would think that they would learn, right? Right? I mean, you'd think that we would learn, right? But they don't. And so in Malachi, we see that this is a message this book is a message of six disputes, six problems, six complaints that God has with Israel. Complaint number one, we talked about in the first sermon. God's complaint is that Israel does not believe that he loves them. They don't believe that God loves them. And so God tells them that he loves them. And then he knows what Israel's going to say. 
because he's all-knowing and he knows their hearts. And so he replies for them. He says, you're going to say to me, well, how, God, how have you loved us? Again, they doubt God's love for them. And in short, God dismantles their false beliefs by pointing to the fact that he loved Jacob, not Esau. That he chose Jacob, not Esau. What does this mean? It means that God set a special affection on Jacob, who became the father of the Israelite nation. Okay, God chose them to be a special people. Not, not Esau, his brother, and not their descendants, which are the Edomites. From Jacob come the Israelites. From Esau come the Edomites. God chose Jacob, not Esau. He chose Israel, not Edom. And God chose by... He shows Israel. He's trying to dismantle their false understanding of God and their, the problem that he has with them. He shows them uh, through historical example that Edom was laid to waste. God brought them down and judged them for their sin and their abuses against Israel. God destroyed them. And then Edom, in its heap of ashes, they try to rebuild after God shatters them. But then God tears them down again and again. They are unable to escape the judgment of God because of their sin. But it's different with Israel. It's different. God made a covenant with them. And God was going to bless them because he chose them. And if they departed from him, then God would punish them. But if they repented of their sin and turned back to God, then God would restore them. He wouldn't continue to break them and shatter them and punish them, unlike what he did with Edom. So this, therefore, shows God's love for Israel. And even though they deny it, they would eventually come to see it. They would eventually declare that the Lord is great beyond Israel and its borders. The second problem, the second dispute or complaint that God has with Israel is that they don't love him. It's not him who doesn't love them. It's they who doesn't love him, who don't love him. God loves his name. He says, he says to Israel and the priest, but you dishonor my name. They've said that God doesn't love them. It's not true. We see the real problem. They don't love God. Isn't that our story? Isn't that our story? God, you don't love me. Look at my life. I mean, I have two flat tires today. Surely you don't love me. Right? My paycheck was smaller than normal. Surely you don't love me. I, I, I see more hair in the sink than on my head. You know, from, from the shower, God, you don't love me. My friends, they were not nice to me this week. You don't love me, God. And the Lord says, I do love you. I gave, I gave my son to you, for you. It's us who doesn't love God properly. And that's what we see in the second complaint. God knows their thoughts again, and so he replies for them. He replies for them. And they say to God, how have we despised your name? We don't think so, God. It doesn't look like we've shown you a lack of love. And God goes on to explain how they offer dirty and nasty and infected animals to the Lord instead of perfect and clean sacrifices. The priests accepted these polluted gifts from the people of Israel. And both groups know, the priests and the people know, that God demands perfection in his sacrifices. Why perfection? Why does God demand perfection? Two reasons. God is worthy of perfection, number one. Number two, Israel, just like us, we are supposed to be perfect before God, okay? We are to present ourselves perfect before God. Because we cannot, 
Because of our sin, because of their sin, they were required to bring a substitute perfection before God. God, I can't present myself to you perfect, the Israelites would say. Here's a substitute in my place, representing what I should give you, but cannot give you and unable to give you. So here's a representative in my place, and I'm giving that to you. And the priests were to take that perfect animal, and it would be slaughtered, and it would be burnt, and it would be offered to God. So the sacrifice was a substitute for their perfection, but it was also a substitute for their death because they were supposed to die for their sin. And so because they can't present themselves holy to God, they offer a perfect sacrifice. And since they don't want to die, the sacrifice dies in its place as a double substitute, one of perfection and one of death. Are you with me so far? And and they're bringing Imperfect blemishes to God. He's saying, you don't love me. You despise my name. Look at what you're offering me. If you were to offer that to a human governor, how do you think he would respond to you? You think you would incur favor with him? I don't think so. Now, this sacrifice is there to point us to Jesus Christ, who is our perfect representative, which is why it was important that he lived perfectly on this world, so that he could present himself as a perfect sacrifice to God and die in our place. So he is our righteousness, and he is our sacrifice. And so you can see why God would be upset with an imperfect sacrifice because it wrongly represents the gospel, the good news of what Jesus Christ has done to save us. Malachi is about Jesus, church, as all the Old Testament is. It pictures what Jesus would do for us. This is why God won't, intoler, uh, won't tolerate abuse and the mis- misuse of his rituals and systems that he gave to them in this Mosaic covenant. He wants Israel to be the evangelists of the world, the gospel preachers through their very peculiar lifestyle. God says in Malachi that he's, he's going to make his great name great no matter what, not just in Israel but among the nations. God would ensure that the entire nations would love his name. His name will be feared. It will be revered. It will be adored and worshipped. And so we get a glimpse in Malachi of this global plan that God has that's going to cause the nations to properly worship God. If we fast forward through Scripture, we see that this all surrounds Jesus Christ who saves people from every corner of earth. And that's why we pray for somebody, uh, some people group from from every part of the world every week. We want them to know Christ because this is God's plan, not ours. It's God's agenda. And so we see these first two disputes that God has with Israel. They dishonor his name, um, and they're accusing God of not loving them. And so here we see there's some lazy priests in Israel. They're not inspecting the sacrifices. And we see selfish citizens offering trash sacrifices to God. Israel does not love God at this moment in time. And so today we continue on with this second dispute, the second complaint that God has, because it's a lengthy passage. We've already had two sermons about this problem. This morning, we're going to look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. In these verses, we see that God's, we see God's warning to the priests and what he will do to them if they don't repent. Then we're going to look at the Levitical covenant and how they're supposed to live and what their purpose is. And then finally, we'll see that how they have corrupted the purpose for which God made the priesthood. Again, it all surrounds this idea that God loves his name and he wants to see his name honored. And God's people and their leaders have not done so in Malachi. So discipline is coming. And this all surrounds the bigger picture of Jesus Christ. So number one, we look at this. Number one, we look at God's rebuke 
God rebukes the priests for their sin. God rebukes the priests for their sin. In Malachi 2, let's look at verses 1 through 4. Let's read it again. And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Think Mosaic Covenant. Indeed, I have already cursed them, because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. I want you to notice that God is addressing the priests of Israel, the spiritual leaders. These are the guys who are supposed to be the mediators, the go-betweens between God and the Israelites. These are the men that are to provide instruction to God's people from his word. They're the ones that are to help the Israelites be reconciled to God and lead them into proper worship, which is more than just singing. And they've done none of this. Back in chapter 1, if you want to recall, God said that the priests were complaining about how hard their work is. And, and we've seen that they weren't inspecting the sacrifices like they were supposed to. They're just lazy. It's too hard, God. They're, they offer polluted and sick and crippled sacrifices and stolen animals to God. You remember what God said? Again, try offering that to your governor and see how he responds. If a human leader wasn't going to accept those kind of gifts, how, how do you think God's going to respond to such animal sacrifices? God says he would prefer that the doors of the temple be shut before offering such nasty sacrifices to him. God won't accept these offerings. In fact, he'll reject them, which means that their sins won't be forgiven and atoned for. Because that's the only way for that to happen. They wouldn't be reconciled to God. Now, I want you to recall that I explained before, listen to this, that we may not just bring any offering to God in worship for reconciliation. We can't just bring whatever we want. We can't bring our good deeds to God and say, God, here's my offering. Forgive me of all my sin. Here's all my good deeds, God. Please forgive me. It won't work. We may try to bring our intellect. God, I was very smart. I mean, I was, I was smarter than the average person in this building, God. And uh, I was at the top of my class, and I read a lot of books, and I studied philosophers and the great thinkers of this world. Lord, here's my offering. Forgive me. It doesn't work. We may try to bring a philosophy or a wisdom. We may try to bring our checkbook. Lord, when I was on earth, I made bank. I had cheese, Lord. More chips than anybody. I invested in all the right stocks. I had rental income. God, forgive me. Here's my offering. Here's what I did right. But all that is garbage. It is nasty before God. Our righteous deeds, Scripture says, are like filthy menstrual rags before God. Scripture puts it that way. That's incredible. That our attempts to bring our goodness to God is garbage. None of that will atone for your sins, and none of that will reconcile us to God. The only proper offering that we may hold up to God For reconciliation is Jesus Christ, our perfect substitute. Jesus is my sacrifice, God. I have nothing else to hold up to you that is acceptable. He's what I cling to for my hope and salvation. And so these priests, they are denigrating and disparaging how it was that God reconciled sinners to himself. These sacrifices, once again, pointed to Christ just as the priesthood was to point to Christ. Sacrifices, they pointed to Jesus. So does the work that the priests do. That points to Jesus as well. They were to act properly as mediators between God and Israel. It is Jesus who properly mediates between God and man. He is our great high priest, Scripture says. 
And he doesn't complain about his work. Jesus doesn't like these priests did. He doesn't take shortcuts. He isn't lazy. He doesn't offer sinful deeds to God. As the great high priest, he does his work right. And he offers himself to the Father on our behalf because of his love and grace and mercy. And in Malachi, God is issuing these priests a command. It's not an option. This is an order. The command is to repent. Stop doing what you are doing. Stop dishonoring my name. Stop dragging it through the mud. Stop breaking covenant with me. I saved you from Egypt. You are, you are to obey me. Act like you love me. And if they don't listen, or if they don't take it to heart, which means apply it to their lives, then God will send the curses of Deuteronomy that he promised on them. In fact, the Lord goes on to say that he's already started to issue the covenant curses because they, they just haven't. They've been in a repetitious cycle of sin. He's going to do it, but he's already started it. He's going to curse their blessings, which is to say that all the good things that God gave them are going to turn sour. What are the blessings they'd received from God for staying faithful to this Mosaic covenant and doing their duties properly? We find that in Deuteronomy 28. You're welcome to look there on your own. I'm going to read and and, um, summarize some of this stuff. But if you want to go back and look at Deuteronomy 28 on your own, please do. Listen to the blessings from God. Listen to the blessings. If they obeyed him and stayed faithful to him and loved him and they kept the Mosaic covenant. God says, you're going to be set high above all nations. Your fields will be blessed. Both the fruit of the womb, meaning they're going to have a lot of kids, and the fruit of the ground, a lot of harvest, they would produce. And your livestock will produce greatly too. Your baskets and kneading bowls would be blessed. Your baskets and kneading bowls, which is to say that they'd have lots of bread and carbs. Who doesn't love carbs? Mm, What a blessing, right? Their enemies would be defeated, Scripture says. Their barns would be full. The world would see that God loves them. He goes on to say that you're going to abound in prosperity. They'd be blessed with rain for their crops and animals. They'd be the bankers and not the borrowers. All they had to do was love God correctly and adhere to the Mosaic Covenant and not follow after other gods. You would think they would say, done! God, we know you're faithful. You'll keep your word. He always does what he says he'll do. I don't know about you, but this seems like a no-brainer to stay devoted to God, does it not? It seems like the Israelites and the priests, I mean, it's, it's a good deal. It's pretty sweet. But they chose to love sin more than the Savior. That's remarkable. Mankind is so foolish and so hateful of God that we would spite his blessings to have what we've been lied to about. Satan always lies to us about our sin and says it's better than what God has for you. And we're foolish enough to believe that mess. It's it's remarkable. Satan, who will be punished forever in hell, we'd rather take his supposed truth over God's pure word. And so these, these are the blessings that God is going to curse. Listen to the curses. If they had money, they'd go broke. If they had crops, they'd not produce. Their enemies would overtake them. The wombs of the women would dry up, as would the ground and the crops. Forget the carbs, no bread, okay? The Lord promised them confusion, and he promised them frustration in everything that they would do as they ran from him. They'd be struck with plagues and disease. They'd have drought and no rain. 
Mildew would infest their crops. Other nations would look down on them. They'd be struck with boils. They'd be robbed. They'd build houses, and they'd not get to live in them because other people would overtake their homes and their land. They'd plant a vineyard and yield no grapes. Their donkeys would be taken away from them. It says their sons and daughters would be taken away in captivity, slaves to other people because they would rather love their sin than love God. They lost their own family members because of their own sinful consequences. They'd be driven insane by all the curses that they had come to see. And God would give them over to other nations. And then they'd serve false gods of wood and stone. They'd have to borrow money and become slaves to debt. All because they did not serve the Lord with joyfulness and gladness of heart. Read Deuteronomy 28 and see the blessings God would give them if they remained faithful to him. And see the curses God would bring to Israel for their forsaking him. Church, That is there to let the world know that rebels against God have no eternal blessing and that those that come to God in repentance and turn for their sin are rewarded forevermore. This isn't there to tell you that you're going to get rich if you stay faithful to God. This is God's covenant with Israel, not with the rest of Christianity, okay? It was their way of of knowing that whether or not they were faithful to God and it's there to point us to the fact that hell awaits those who run from God, and the eternal creation awaits those with God who, for those who want to love God. And so God wanted the Mosaic Covenant to teach the world how good it is to be with him and what it looks like to be unfaithful to him. God also wanted the Mosaic Covenant to teach us how Jesus saves us through that sacrificial system. And because the work of Jesus is pictured in these sacrifices, God required that the priest perform sacrifices correctly with proper sacrifices. So the priests and the people we're guilty of despising God's name. But here, God is holding the priests accountable for their failed leadership. The sanctions are coming, and they've already begun. Behold, he says, I will rebuke your offspring. Look at that in the scripture. Behold means to look or to see. It's an exclamation to pay attention to what you are about to hear. God says that this rebuke he's giving to the priests will continue on to their children, to their seed, offspring. It appears that the children were following in the disobedience of their priestly fathers. This rebuke to them seems to be coming sooner rather than later. God is right about to do this. It's near. God is adding urgency to the situation. And it's not just contained to the priests. The rebuke and the curse is spreading like an uncontained virus. The rebuke is not all that is to come. The Lord is going to listen to this. It says he's going to spread dung on their faces. This refers not to just the feces of those sacrifices, but the guts and the entrails of these corrupted animals that they tried to offer to the Lord in sacrifice. He's going to smear poop and entrails all over their face in perfect offerings that were offered to God. This, these entrails, this dung, this feces, It was all to be taken outside of the camp of Israel, on the outside of their walls. And it was to be burned because it was considered unclean. The feces and the entrails were considered unclean. And it would defile the temple, which was the Lord's dwelling place. I think we all know what it's like to step in something like that, okay? Get it off, all right? It's unclean, all right? It's filthy. I'm not sure if you see what the Lord is trying to communicate to the priests by saying that he's going to spread all this on their faces. 
This is God humiliating him. But it's more than that. It's more than a humiliation. It's God showing contempt he has for the sacrifices and their behavior. That God hates this. And that God is not pleased with them. They are hypocritical, these priests. They are indifferent in their worship of God. And so he smears them with things that would also make them unclean. If the stuff is unclean, now they are unclean. This is to show them that they are corrupt and they are not acceptable to God either. It's not just a sacrifice. You're, you're disgusting to me. You're sinful. And it shows that they are not fit for priestly work. These priests were considered defiled before God. And if they're considered unclean before God, all right, for God's service, then it, that would suit them just fine because well, God's work is just a, a burden to them. Okay? A few weeks ago, John Wagle mistakenly spoke of the tribe of Dung, so we thought, I think this is them right here, the tribe of Dung. And just like the entrails and the feces of the sacrifice were to be taken away out of the camp, so too God says, I'm going to take you out with the trash. I'm going to take you out with the dung, with the entrails. You're supposed to be in the temple doing my priestly work, mediating. And like everything that's to be burned up, I'm, I'm throwing you out with it. Does that weigh heavy on you? Does, does that wake you up at all to the holiness of God and to his righteousness and to what God requires in order for you to be properly reconciled to him? This is powerful. Can you sense God's displeasure? Well, what do we do with this? What application do we have since we're not Israel? First, I would say that they were distorting the story of the gospel. Were they not? You can see that, right? Thus, we must never distort the story of the gospel. There are all sorts of messages being preached by Christians that are no gospel at all. The message and the pictures of the gospel that God has given us must never be distorted. They must remain pure and accurate. Communion paints a picture of the gospel. We can't distort that. Baptism presents the gospel to us in picture. We should not distort that. Gospel preaching, us sharing the good news, must never be distorted just to appease the hearers that are hearing this message. These are things that declare the gospel in word and in symbol. They point to Christ. They declare what God has done to save sinners. We dare not change them to suit society. And we must never, ever be lazy in our duties to share God's message. Christians are called in the New Testament, we are called the royal priesthood. We have a duty to help people be reconciled to God through the message that we share. And we have to do this properly. So let us never grow weary of doing things like these priests. So first, I would say that they were distorting the gospel and we should not do so. The second application, I would say, is for leaders in the church. We must watch our life and doctrine as we are told. We cannot dishonor the Lord's name by leading God's people astray from proper worship. We must take our responsibility seriously regardless of where you lead. This message is for leaders as well. A third application, I would say, is for non-Christians, people who don't know Christ. There's serious consequences for being outside of a relationship with God. And let me, let me tell you this. Everyone's in a relationship with God. It's either on good terms or bad terms. Okay. Everyone is God's creation. And you're either in rebellion to him and outside of his kingdom, or you've repented of that and come into his wonderful, merciful kingdom. To be outside of covenant with God brings judgment and condemnation. To be in a right relationship brings blessing. You can only be in a covenant or a right relationship with God when you come to Christ. 
when you come and you enter into this new covenant where Christ takes away your sin by your faith in him, that he died and rose again for you as a substitute perfection, as a substitute sacrifice. And when you believe in Christ to save you, trust in him to save you, he gives you his perfection so that you can stand before God as perfect, just as he has taken away your sin and suffered for you. You can live forever with God because Jesus is your resurrection. Right? A resurrection is coming to all who trust in Christ. To disregard the perfect sacrifice of Jesus is to be outside of the new covenant of Christ. It is to be damned to hell. The urgent message is like the message that God gives here. Right? Repent, or you'll be considered defiled. That is the warning to God from you. And let me tell you, it is loving for God to give you a warning before the judgment comes. He's trying to let you know that you can be rescued, that he wants to bless you and love you and do amazing things for you and with you. I don't mean here and now. Yes, here and now, but in eternity, we will experience God's amazing presence. Listen to his command. Turn from his sinful ways and come to Christ as Lord and Savior, believing that he died and rose again to bring you into eternal bliss with him. Stop. I don't know. I, don't, I, I wish there were some of us that I could just shake and say, stop listening to the world. Stop listening to the lies of Satan. You're being deceived. And you can't see it because of the blinders that have been put on you. And all you see is your one-track world and your one little view. And God, God has an amazing blessing for you. But you can't see it because you've rehearsed the lies so much in your head that now you believe that that's true. And only God can take those blinders off, and I pray that he does. Stop listening to the lies of the world. Stop listening to your own sinful heart. Stop loving the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil more than God who made you to be with him. Listen to God. So we see in our first point that he rebukes the priests for their sin. Secondly, we see that God reminds the priests of the Levitical covenant. God reminds the priests of the Levitical covenant. Verse 4, 5, 6 say this, So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, the covenant that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name, and true instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. Now, verse 4 actually closes out the first point that we talked about, that we just went through, but it also sets up the second point of Scripture. It's like a transitional sentence. In verse 1, God says he's given a command to them to repent, or else sanctions will come, and a blessing will be cursed. In verse 4, he says that these curses are, uh, are there to let you know that his covenant with Levi is real, so that you'll know that the covenant I made with Levi stands. It hasn't changed. God hasn't forgotten it. I'm commanding you to do what you already know to do. Repent or be punished. Repent and be blessed or rebel and be punished. This covenant of Levi is still in effect. And this comes from the God of angel armies, the Lord of hosts. So, so what's up with this covenant of Levi? We've heard about the Abrahamic covenant, the redemption, Noahic, Abrahamic, uh, the Adamic, I should say, uh, Mosaic, Davidic, and the new covenant. Is, is there another covenant in scripture? Before we get into that, let me first talk about Levi. And let's try to make sense of Levi and the priests. Within the tribe of, uh, let's, let's break it down for you, okay? So I'm going to put another slide up on the screen, or our guys in the back will. From the Old Testament, let's figure out who Levi is. 
Who's God talking about in Malachi when he says this covenant of Levi? In the Old Testament, you remember the patriarchs of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember, Abraham is the one who God made the threefold promise to. Abraham has the name Isaac. Isaac has the name Jacob. Jacob, his name, his name is changed to Israel eventually by God, okay? Jacob is Israel. Israel has 12 sons, which became the 12 tribes. If you want to think of them like states within a country, think of it like that, okay? One of these sons was named Levi, one of these 12 sons, and so was the tribe. And within the tribe of Levi are clans or families. One clan came from Aaron, who was Moses' brother. So we, we see one Levi, the guy who started the tribe. From Aaron, though, from this family in Levi, from Aaron's descendants, God called them, these men, to serve as priests of Israel. Aaron was the first high priest, and his sons were the first priests. And they were all from the tribe of Levi. The rest of the clans of the tribe of Levi are often called Levites. And they were supposed to help the priests in their priestly duties. So technically speaking, all priests are Levites, but not all Levites are priests. So you with me so far? Okay, I know it's a lot of people's names. I didn't want you to get confused, so I just put them up there for you to see. As you read the Old Testament, sometimes Scripture will refer to the priests as Levites, because they are. And sometimes it will refer to non-priests as Levites, because they are too. But it doesn't mean that every time you see the term Levite, it's in reference to the priests. Context has to make that clear. So this covenant that we read about in verse 4 on, it is made with Levi. So the question is, who is this referring to? Is it referring to... Uh, the actual father of the tribe, Levi, the single man, Jacob's son? Is it referring to the entire tribe of Levi when it speaks of Levi, this covenant of Levi? and all, Or is it referring to the priests only? Or, or is it referring to Pastor Steve's son, Levi, right here? Or not son, his nephew. Is that who we're talking about, this guy right here? Thanks for being with us this morning. Who are we talking about here? Well, if you know, come and tell me so I can work it into my sermon real quick, okay? Because I'm not quite sure. It's a tricky one. So let's try to figure this out together, okay? In Malachi 3, verse 3, just to skip ahead a little bit, Malachi uses the term Levi in a way that includes all the sons of Levi. That, that is to say, the priests and the non-priests. All, all, the, all the Levites. It says they all need purifying. Priestly servants and priests. So Malachi is lumping them together as one big group of Levi. They're all set aside for God's special purpose of leading God's people to the truth, with the priests being the main authority and the regular Levites assisting them all. They're one group, two roles, if you will, priests and assistants. Now before we get into this covenant, all right, it's all about, let's cover some background of the priesthood of, of Levi. If this is new to you, I understand. If it gets hard to follow, hopefully it won't. I get that too. Hang on and just learn as much as you can, okay? In the Old Testament, again, you see God making his threefold promise with Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant, okay? These get passed on to Isaac. They get passed on to Jacob, who is Israel. Israel has a son named Levi. In Genesis 34, Levi's sister, Dinah, she's raped by a Canaanite prince. He's raped, and this guy now wants to marry her. So he sends a messenger all right, to Jacob, to his family, to try and secure Dinah for his wife. 
Jacob's sons get word of this guy. And so they, and what he wants to do and marry their sister after he's raped her. And they hatch this crazy plan to get revenge on not just the prince, but all his followers. When the prince's messenger arrives, he asks for Dinah to be the prince's wife. And he says that the two groups should intermarry. The Canaanites and Israelites should get together and get married. And of course, this would be forbidden by God. But the sons of Jacob, with their evil plan, they say, hey, guys, this can't happen. You guys aren't circumcised. You're uncircumcised Canaanites. Circumcision was the sign that God gave to Abraham to show that they were in covenant with Abraham. That's the sign of the Abrahamic covenant, just as the rainbow is the sign of the Noahic covenant. Just as the Sabbath is the sign of the Mosaic covenant. Most covenants have signs. And so the sons of Jacob say that the only way that these intermarriages are going to take place is that if all the Canaanites get circumcised. And the messenger likes the idea. So he returns to the prince. The prince likes to plan. And so all the Canaanites get circumcised. On the third day of their recovery from their surgeries, Levi and his brother Simeon took swords and killed all the men in their weakened and recovering condition. And they killed the prince and the messenger. This was their revenge because their sister had been raped. They pulled a Will Smith on behalf of their sister. And their dad was seriously angry at that. Later in Genesis 49, we read that Jacob cursed Simeon and Levi. He cursed them with landlessness. They will never own property because of their bloodlust and their violence. So as of now, they're set aside from the blessing that Jacob gave, that Israel gave to most of his sons. But that's going to change. God's going to do something in the future. Fast forward. There's the beginning story of Levi. Fast forward to the story of Israel. Uh, the descendants of Jacob, they're in the wilderness with God. They've been freed from Egyptian rule. The Mosaic covenant that God had made with Israel, it's already been confirmed. The laws and even the priesthood have been declared. God designated Aaron that he would be the high priest and that Aaron's sons would serve as priests and that all future priests and high priests would come from this clan of Aaron from the tribe of Levi. So one clan from the tribe of Levi is singled out as special. At this point, Moses is up on Mount Sinai. He's made several visits up and down the mountain. He's up there. He's receiving a physical copy of the covenant in stone form on tablets. I don't mean like iPads and Android tablets, all right? On stone tablets, he's receiving the covenant that God made. And at the base of the mountain, the Israelites are growing weary of waiting for Moses to come down again. Come on, Moses, hurry up. So they gather all the gold together that everyone had, and they ask Aaron the high priest to form it into a god. <laughs> the high priest, supposed to be leading people to the true God, makes a golden calf and says, Behold your God! And they all worship with a wild dancing party and just wickedness. It's just a mess. Okay, The high priest engaging in idolatry with the rest of God's people. God tells Moses, he sees us. God's going to come down and God, he says, I'm going to destroy them, these people who rebel against me. Moses says, please, God, don't. Please, just hang on a second. Moses heads down, and he goes on a righteous rampage, and he destroys the golden calf. And he even takes the stone tablets and throws them on the ground, and they broke. Moses tells everyone that God is angry with them, and he yells to everyone. He says, who is on the Lord's side? Not me. I love my sin. I'd rather rebel against God. 
That's most of the people. That's most of the people. Who is on the Lord's side? And all the sons of Levi, the tribe of Levi, gathered around Moses. Moses instructs the Levites, kill all those who won't repent. And 3,000 people die that day. Moses then designates the entire Levite tribe as a tribe for service of the Lord and promised God will bless them. So the the tribe that was no longer going to get land now has a special place in God's redemption plan that they're going to serve the Lord. Still not going to get land, but going to serve the Lord in God's service. The whole tribe of Levi is now set apart for God. But now God has designated the entire tribe as special for him. Eventually, Aaron dies. So here's, here's Levi, the, the, the tribe, right? Levi the man, Levi the tribe. Eventually, Aaron dies. Israel's now living in a place called Shittim. There, the Israelites began to commit sexual immorality with the Moabites. And the Israelites began to worship foreign gods, Baal, and they're sacrificing to him. This angered the Lord. He commanded Moses to have all the chieftains hanged for their betrayal of God. While all this is going on, an Israelite man shows up with a paganite woman, with a Midianite woman, with his, to, uh, and he's brought it to his family. He's engaged in the immorality that angered God. Aaron's grandson named Phineas, Aaron's grandson saw this. If he's from the tribe of, or the clan of Aaron, that means he's a priest, right? Phineas is a priest, of course. All his Aaron's descendants were to be priests. When Phineas saw this man, he took a spear and he ran it through this Israelite man and the Midianite woman. And scripture says the anger of the Lord was stopped. And in Numbers 25, listen to this. The Lord says that it was Phineas, it was his zeal that turned back the wrath of the Lord. In verse 12, the Lord says, Behold, behold, I give him my covenant of peace. It shall be to him and his descendants after him a covenant of perpetual, perpetual priesthood because he was jealous for his God and he made atonement for the people of Israel. And so now when we read Malachi 4 on, we see that there was a covenant made with a priest, a covenant of peace, which mimics the wording of Malachi verses 4, 5, and 6. Okay, It's a covenant of peace, one of life and peace. What's interesting is that that the covenant that God made with Phineas, it's one that he made with him, a single priest, but somehow Malachi takes this covenant and applies it to the whole tribe of Levi, not just Phineas. Many times in Scripture, we see that it's the entire tribe of Levi that is ministers of the Lord. And so Levi mentioned, the Levi mentioned in verse 4 is the whole tribe of Levi. God made an agreement or covenant with them. And they're to serve as ministers of the Lord of Israel forever. Priests and assistants. And so God is speaking to the priests through Malachi. And God says, I command you. I command you to repent of your offering bad sacrifices to me. Stop being lazy and casual with your duties. If not, I will send curses your way. And I've already started. As priests, this lets them know that God's command is real. I'm not joking. The way that you know I'm not joking and that my covenant is is in effect is the curses are coming. You see them, right? Yeah, I'm not lying. It will stand. I don't break my covenants. I don't break my promises. It's real. It's legit. You serve me, you'll be blessed like I promised. That's legit too. And he blessed all the Levites and all of Israel when they were faithful to God. 
And when you deviate, you'll experience the curses that God promised in the bigger Mosaic covenant. And so this Levitical covenant, this covenant with Levi, it's a smaller covenant placed within the Mosaic covenant, a covenant within a covenant, if you will. Okay? This covenant, God says, was one of life and peace. Life and peace. What do we have with God when we are saved through Jesus Christ? Life and peace with God. Okay? The priests were there to help divert the wrath of God away from the Israelites so that they were not at war with God. They did this through properly offered sacrifices. This is how God was temporarily appeased for their sins. And so if the priests didn't do this properly, and if they didn't leave God's people to do this properly, then they wouldn't get life. They would get death. They wouldn't have peace. They would have war from God. There would be no walking with God. But if the priests remained faithful in covenant to God, then the people would experience the abundant life and peace that God had planned for them. This is the agreement this is the covenant and promise God made with Levi. This was a covenant of fear, meaning that it should literally strike terror in anyone who wishes to turn their back on God. The wrath of God is not to be contended with. Sin is not a small matter. There is nothing worse than you can do to betray the Lord of hosts, the God of angel armies. They stood in awe of his name. Did you see that? They stood in awe of his name. What was God's accusation at the beginning of this second dispute? You don't love my name. You priests right now in Malachi. The former priests, man, they love my name. Look what Phineas did. Look what the tribe of Levi did around the golden calf situation. They stood up for the Lord. They loved my name. Look what Phineas did. He loved me. He hated immorality and hated anything that would file God's name. But you don't. They stood in awe of my name. God's name represents him. And so God is chastising these priests because unlike former priests, these do not currently love and revere God. The Levi of old had true instruction in his mouth. No wrong was found on his lips. This, is, this means that the tribe of Levi, primarily the priests, were responsible for communicating the truth of God's word to Israel. And they did it well. There was no falsehood or misrepresentation of God's word from these former generations of priests that are referred to here. They are ear ticklers and teaching for a following. They're not teaching for fame. They're not teaching for anything other than the love of God. And they knew God's word and they could rightly explain it. These particular priests were devoted to God in Mount Sinai, again, just like Phineas. And not only was their teaching pure, but so were their actions at those moments. The Levites walked with God in peace and uprightness and holiness and righteousness. And God was not angry or at war with these priests for rebelling against him because they weren't. They were faithful and covenant to God. In fact, by their teaching and by their actions, they turned many away from iniquity or sin. They caused many people to repent of their sin and to come to God for blessing. And thus God's wrath was diverted. These that remained in covenant with God, these former priests led other people to salvation. Now, I don't know if you can just breathe this in and smell the aroma of Christ in here. Do you smell Jesus in this? I hope so. Jesus is the perfect and ultimate great high priest. Jesus is the way to be at peace with God. He loves God perfectly. Jesus perfectly reveres his name. He is the truth, and he proclaims only that which is right. 
He walks in perfect uprightness before God, in perfect agreement with God. And it is he who makes peace between us and God. It is he who brings life and peace to us. This is what God does in the new covenant through Jesus Christ. It is his priestly duty and priestly sacrifice that does us. And all are done perfectly. He leads us to salvation. And right now, he's leading others to turn away from sin, to turn to God by the work that he does through the church. He is the head Jesus, we are the body, and he works through his members to take the gospel to the world. And so Jesus right now is actively turning sinners towards God and away from sin through our proclamation of the gospel, of the truth. It's his body. And let us never forget that Jesus is more zealous for God than Phineas. Jesus is more zealous for God than the Levites, and he's more zealous for God than you and I. There is no one that loves God more than Jesus, okay? And so he's pursuing us and pursuing others so that they can be with God because Jesus knows how valuable God is, how amazing God is to behold. Because he is God. It is he who is judge of the universe. Jesus is, and he will strike down all who do not side with Yahweh. Our Jesus continues on forever as king and priest. As king and priest. The prophet Jeremiah takes these two ideas in the form of a covenant And he merges them together, this king and this priest. Because remember, a covenant was made with David. A covenant is made here with the Levites that we see and we have read about. And in Jeremiah chapter 33, these two covenants are brought together in one person. One person. Jeremiah 33, 17, look on the screen. It says, for thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. That's the Davidic covenant going to have an eternal king and the levitical priest shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings to burn grain offerings and to make sacrifices forever that is jesus christ church who offers himself once and for all as a sacrifice for sinners it is jesus christ who will sit on the throne of david forever and ever church what is the application for all this number one christ is the fulfillment of all the covenants that we went over in the adamic covenant Christ does what Adam failed to do, which is to live before God perfectly. He is the redeemer in the redemption covenant. He is the judge foreshadowed in the Noahic covenant. He is the one who blesses all nations as promised in the the Abrahamic covenant. He is the fulfillment of all that we see in the Mosaic covenant with their sacrifices and rituals and holidays. He's the one signified in the Levitical covenant who brings life and peace and turns people away from sin. He is the son of David, right? The one who sits on the throne forever and ever. He is the one who seals the new covenant by the shedding of his blood. It is Jesus who will reign on David's throne forever. It is Jesus who was sacrificed on the cross once and for all and makes atonement for our sins forever. Jeremiah points to the eternal king and the eternal priest, just as Malachi leads us to Christ and the covenant made with Levi. So look to Christ in all of Scripture. Look to Christ in your whole life. All of history is about Jesus. As Christians, secondly, we are called to be priests, not like the Old Testament. Being priests means that we are about the business of telling others about our king and priest, Jesus Christ. Let us remember that we can only approach God in worship because Jesus gives us his perfection and because he takes away our sin. Therefore, we Christians, we must know the word and we must worship the Lord correctly through Christ. This is why it's so important for the priests to rightly perform their duties in Malachi. It led others to salvation. And so we too, by our actions and by our right gospel proclamation, 
are to be like those priests, turning people away from sin to Christ. Leaders, third application, we must take seriously the call to lead God's people and to proclaim the truth and to walk with God. May we watch our life and our doctrine and may our zeal for the Lord be strong so that God's church will follow suit. And lastly, we see, third, that God reiterates the priest's responsibilities, their corruption, and his punishment. God reiterates the priest's responsibilities, their corruption, and his punishment. Verse 7 says this, it says, For the lips of the Lord should guard knowledge, and the priest should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is a messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. So I make you despised and abased before all people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but you show partiality in your instruction. We've already talked about much of this, but the priests were to guard knowledge, to watch over it, to learn it, to proclaim it, to defend it. Priests are messengers bringing to others, not their own message, but the message of God. And even Malachi is a messenger. That's what his name means. And what are we to do? We're to, we're to seek instruction. Us Christians, we're to seek instruction, or they were, those Israelites were to seek instruction from the mouth of the priests. So too, we get our instructions from the priests of priests, Jesus. Jesus chose his apostles to be messengers for him, and we see that in the New Testament. That's what we read. So when we listen to Scripture, we are listening to Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate messenger of the Lord, for he is the embodiment of that message. Jesus is the gospel. He's on every page of Scripture. Therefore, those who share the message must be mindful to rightly divide it and proclaim it, and explain it, and apply it to the people of God. And if you teach in any capacity at this church, you must not be slack in your duty. These priests have not guarded knowledge, proclaimed it, or defended it. They have turned away from the truth. They don't walk in this covenant of life and peace. And because of that, they lead others to hell by their horrible teaching and horrible practices. They're supposed to turn people away from sin, but they failed. They failed their part, so God would keep his part. They hated his name, so God would drag them through the mud and spread dung on their faces and consider them defiled and remove them from his presence. That's what he did with these failed leaders. In church, let me tell you, it's very important that we keep the, the word of God faithful and true. And these priests, they were preaching and teaching impartiality, which means they were doing it for kickbacks, for bribes, and for money. That's why they were doing this. And they didn't apply the law of God evenly to everyone that's what it means by they were showing partiality. Maybe they were letting the rich get away with improper sacrifices by getting a kickback from them. Yeah, he showed me a few bucks. I'll, I'll take your junk animals. That way you can keep all the good ones, Mr. Rich Guy. And so they gave out instruction that was not right, pure, and evenly applied. They didn't teach the word of God fairly. Israel's in dark times right now in Malachi. Would any hope come? We're going to have to wait and see. For now, final application. Remember that not many of you should become teachers of the word of God. Scripture says that. That means those who teach will be held to a greater responsibility by God, which is why we can see that God takes their failed leadership so seriously. Okay? Church members, a second application. You ought to be faithful to attend our, our meetings where godly instruction is proclaimed, where godly worship is taught, and instruction on how you can help turn others away from sin. If your pastor and deacons and leaders in training are providing a good example for you to follow, then learn from them. Listen to God's preachers inasmuch as they rightly declare the word of God. And study the word to see if what we're saying is true. Go home and see if I'm lying to you today, please. 
Don't be foolish. Don't be superstitious. Don't just accept what you hear. A lot of people think Christians are stupid, and a lot of us are, okay? (laughs) Because we just listen to what other people say and parrot it, and we don't actually study. And we don't listen to the other side's arguments, and we don't try to see where there are holes in it and where they've been doing the same thing. Most people believe that there's no God that the God of Scripture is not true because they've heard some person say something and they just repeated it over and over and over. And they don't even examine their own beliefs. Okay? And a lot of Christians do that too. Shame on us. Come to the Word of God to be taught rightly and then go home and study it. Master the Word. We may prove ourselves to be false converts if we deviate from the truth. And we may prove ourselves to be a false church. Let's make sure that we don't do that, that we don't fall into Satan's lies. If, if we do, God will remove our lampstand and we will not shine in this world any longer. That's his promise to those who turn away from him as a church. Listen, these priests were preaching for money. And while we need money to further the gospel, that is much different than preaching for money. Hear that again. While we need finances to spread the gospel, that is much different than somebody preaching for greedy gain. Okay? We give to further the gospel. We don't preach to get rich. And we elders... I promise you this, we show no partiality if people try to wave a few bucks at us to get us to preach or to lead in a certain way. I promise you that. Let me tell you that many pastors, they're afraid to lead God's people correctly because they're afraid of their offerings going down. Damn them to hell. Lead God's people effectively and correctly regardless of the outcome. We don't bend to the God of money here at Sovereign Way Christian Church. And sometimes church members threaten to leave and to take their offerings elsewhere if they, don't give, if they don't get their way in church. If that's you, goodbye. We don't want that kind of church member here where, where you think you can persuade us with money. We stand for God. We love his name. We honor his name. And we don't teach for profit. Do you hear that? I will take that to my grave. Okay? I promise you that we don't. We will will not show partiality to the rich or to those who give and try to flex like that. If that's your attitude, repent. If you think you can muscle God's leaders and God's church around by waving finances, repent of that. We serve God. We're in covenant with Jesus, the new covenant. We speak for him and we live for him. So don't try to tempt anyone in God's family with the fear of man or with the lust of money. Lastly, if you're a non-Christian, I can only say that you need Jesus Christ. You need to turn from your sin. My job and our Christian's job, uh, church members here, is to call you away from sin and to lead you to the, the great high priest, Jesus Christ, who offered himself as a sacrifice. Abandon your sin. When you stand before God as a sinner, if you have not clung to Jesus, you will wish to God that you had turned from your sin. And it will be too late at that point. So now is the time appointed for your salvation. Turn now. It is in this life that you rebel against God. Therefore, it is in this life that you must turn to God. You cannot do it once you are dead. That's the cutoff. That's the deadline. And no one knows when you're going to die or I'm going to die. God's already set that date. And you must repent before then. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we've heard your word. And it's